Hi, I'm Sophie Rideout, and this is Policy Talks. In this episode, we sit down with Professor Akeem Hurlman and discuss his recently released article, Did Brexit Change Perceptions of the EU and the UK and Canada, published in the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal. Dr. Akeem Hurlman is a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. He is also co-director of the Centre for European Studies and is cross-appointed to the Institute of European, Russia and Eurasian Studies. Dr. Hurlman's scholarly work focuses on the politics of the European Union. Of particular interest to him are political discourses about European integration, democracy and legitimacy in the EU and Canada-Europe relations. Dr. Hurlman contributed to the publication of European Union Governance and Policymaking, A Canadian Perspective. He recently published an article in the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal about the effects of Brexit and its impacts on relations within Canada, the UK and the EU, which we will be discussing today. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. We are so excited to have you, Dr. Hurlman. To start off, can you please tell us about your work and field of research? Yes, of course. So I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, I work uh, in the area of comparative politics, but my regional specialization is on Europe and especially on the politics of the European Union, um, where I mainly look at um, how people perceive the European integration process. I've studied Um, political discourses about European integration in the media, in Parliament, among citizens and focus groups, for instance, uh, public opinion on European integration, as well as questions of democratizing the European Union. Is it democratic? Does it have a democratic deficit? How can it become more democratically legitimate? Those types of questions. And more recently, I've become more interested in questions of Canada-EU relations uh, after um, having uh, been at Carleton for more than 16 years uh, and witnessing Canada-EU relations sort of firsthand here in Ottawa, that became an area of research. Uh, And uh, that's what my current project on the impact of uh, Brexit on Canada-EU relations is on. Amazing. Thank you so much. And so with that being said, can you tell us a little bit about your recently released article in the CFPJ and what it seeks to analyze? Yes. So this article is part of this research, which I briefly mentioned on the impact of Brexit uh, on Canada's relations to Europe. And here we study both the impact of Brexit on relations uh, to the European Union and to the United Kingdom. Uh, Brexit, if you think back, the process of the UK leaving uh, the European Union can be sort of analyzed at various levels. It's an example of economic disintegration, the UK leaving the single market. 
that for Canada means also that its economic relations with Europe had to be reconfigured. Previously, the CETA agreement, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement with the European Union covered trade with the United Kingdom. And with Brexit, it meant that the United Kingdom left CETA and uh, uh, trade relations between Canada and the United Kingdom needed to be readjusted. Secondly, Brexit can be analyzed as a process of political differentiation, meaning that the UK is now a more independent political actor on the world stage, uh, pursuing its own foreign policy priorities, which they call Global Britain in the United Kingdom. And again, for Canada, this differentiation also means uh, finding a way to cope with, uh, to, to respond to the availability of the United Kingdom as a sort of an additional partner with more leverage compared to the EU, which of course remains an important political partner for Canada. And the third dimension of Brexit, Brexit that's important is Brexit as an example of populist mobilization, obviously uh, happening in 2016, the same year that uh, that uh, saw Donald Trump come to power in the United States. That's when the initial referendum on Brexit was held in the United Kingdom. Uh, so it's an example, just like the election of Trump, of sort of a populist protest vote, if you will, against uh, the status quo, against uh, uh, perceived elites, against globalization. And uh, this is also reverberated. And of course, there's also many people in Canada who feel attracted by this populist mobilization that Canadian political parties, especially on the conservative side, have to find a response to that. So what we are trying to uh, assess in this project is how all of these various dimensions of Brexit have impacted Canada's relations with the European Union and the United Kingdom. And in this article specifically, we are studying uh, commentaries in Canadian newspapers, uh, both in the years leading up to Brexit and after Brexit, to see if Brexit has sort of triggered a change in the way in which um, Canada's relationship to Europe is discussed in the media. Uh, so that is the focus of, of this particular study, and that's how it sort of fits into this broader context of what I'm researching. Thank you so much. And so in the context of this study, can you briefly walk us through the methodology of your research? Yes, sure. So what we did, uh, and I should mention that this article is co-authored with uh, uh, my colleague Patrick Leblanc at the University of Ottawa and uh, three graduate students, uh, Sarah Ben-Khalil, Asif Hamid and Acacia Hamniski. Uh, so all of them have really contributed enormously to uh, this research. So what we did uh, for this study is that we analyzed media reporting in six Canadian newspapers, um, the Globe and Mail, the National Post, the Toronto Star on the English side, and Le Devoir, La Presse, and Le Journal de Montréal on the French side uh, in a fairly long period, June 2014 to June 2021. Uh, and uh, what we wanted uh, to uh, see is whether commentary articles, so not sort of uh, news reports, but uh, op-eds, uh, and, and other commentating pieces, whether they raised uh, new questions about Canada's transatlantic relationship and how they evaluated uh, both Brexit itself, but also the 
partners that Canada has on the European side, specifically how these articles evaluated the European Union and the United Kingdom as potential or extra partners for Canadian foreign policy. Thank you so much. And so the article mentions in particular the constructive tension between three conceptions of Canada's international role, um, being Europeanism, internationalist, and continentalism. So how do these concepts help us understand the UK's exit from the European Union? Um, yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is these, these are concepts that have been suggested amongst other by um, uh, Frédéric Meron at the University of Montréal, who is actually one of the contributors to this larger research uh, project, writing with uh, Antoine van der Mortele, a co-author. And uh, they say uh, in a uh, 2011, I believe, uh, publication that can Canadian foreign policy can be analyzed by looking at these three concepts, Europeanism, internationalism, and continentalism as sort of guiding ideas for Canadian foreign policy. But they also say in practice, sort of, it's often a combination of the of the three that sort of uh, defines uh, Canadian foreign policy. And actually, this idea is quite interesting if you analyze Canada's relations to the European Union before Brexit, because we can say that uh, the EU was sort of a um, a partner that could really be embraced before Brexit by all of these uh, by all of these uh, conceptions of Canadian foreign policy. Obviously, Europeanism because it stood for Canada's relations to Europe, but it also provided a nice way of not having to discuss whether relations to France or the UK are more important because they were both in the European Union. Internationalism the, um, clearly identified the EU as an important partner because it's uh, an international organization that really stands for this idea of creating multilateral institutions uh, to uh, promote peace. And for continentalism, which is focused more on the United States, obviously Europe is less important as a partner, but at the same time, Europe also wasn't really ever seen as a threat to uh, Canada's relations to the Euro to the United States because uh, obviously it was a reliable ally within NATO and so on. Uh, so the question that we are asking is how has Brexit changed this scenario? And for one, what it has done is that it has sort of introduced a split in this Europeanist conception uh, where now uh, there might be situations where Canada has to ask uh, is it more important for us to collaborate with the European Union or with the United Kingdom? Um, often that decision does not have to uh, be made because uh, the UK and the EU do not disagree on anything, but there can be constellations, and we can get into that if you want to, uh, where this decision uh, might pose itself and Canadian policymakers have to make this decision which of these relationships is more important. Um, uh, and. Uh, uh, at the same time, the turmoil that Brexit, uh, Brexit has brought could also mean that Canada perhaps uh, focuses more on uh, the United States as a partner, focuses more on other international organizations as a partner. So the idea is simply uh, that there was sort of a fairly well-established harmonious place of the EU within the core concepts of Canadian foreign policy, but Brexit can pose some challenges here and potentially some realignments or new conflicts that define Canadian foreign policy. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And so 
In continuing the discussion of Canada's perception of the UK, what can your findings tell us about how this perception of the UK and EU changed after Brexit? Well, um, in this research specifically, we looked at uh, media reporting, as I mentioned. And um, what we see here is actually a, perhaps that there was a potential for change, um, but it wasn't really fully realized. So what our analysis does show is that Brexit uh, once the referendum had taken place in June of 2016, it did lead to an increase in media debates about Canada's relationship to Europe. Uh, and in that context, um, there were questions about sort of reconfiguring relationships to Europe. Uh, initially, in the context of the referendum, uh, some uh, politicians on the conservative side of the political spectrum uh, uh, argued that it was now very important for Canada to really deepen its relationships with the UK, to immediately make a new free trade agreement with the United uh, Kingdom, things like that. Uh, potentially, also, there were ideas of uh, discussing a so-called CANSUC agreement, which would see Canada uh, come together in an agreement with not just the UK, but also Australia and New Zealand, the sort of the, the if you will, the white countries in the Commonwealth uh, that was being proposed, while others said uh, Brexit is an example of, of chaos and uh, shows that uh, as uh, if you remember, immediately after the referendum in the years that followed, it, it led to quite a chaotic period in British politics, uh, which uh, was also by some people uh, taken as an argument for why um, Canada should focus more on relations with the European Union. So that happened in uh, the years after Brexit, uh, mainly sort of 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, but what we did find is that uh, this debate sort of really didn't last beyond the conflicts in the United Kingdom and the EU over the negotiation of their new relationship and the ratification of the withdrawal agreement in the United Kingdom, which was quite uh, specific. Um, so we saw, we saw sort of a short term interest, uh, short term debate, potential, a potential for uh, moving into different directions, but ultimately that potential was not realized, the debate subsided, uh, and what we did not find was any significant and lasting changes in the way in which uh, these Canadian newspaper commentators perceived both the UK and the European Union as partners. Rather, here as well, we see more sh short-term uh, shifts in the assessment. So while, uh, for instance, Theresa May as Prime Minister in the United Kingdom had difficulties uh, having the withdrawal agreement ratified and ultimately her government fell over that conflict, that led to much more skeptical assessments of the United Kingdom as a reliable partner for Canada, while the immediate aftermath of Brexit, the EU was evaluated more negatively than usual because it was obviously in crisis with the member state having left and so on. But all of these things sort of evened out. And uh, uh, what, what we did find ultimately is a remarkable stability then in long-term perceptions uh, of uh, Canada's relationship with both the um, European Union and the United Kingdom. However, uh, one thing that, that is important to note 
which by the way, we also found in a public opinion study we did as part of this larger project, is that there are significant partisan differences uh, which show up in public opinion between supporters of the Conservative Party and everyone else, if you will, in Canadian politics, and also show up in the media between uh, the different media sources, depending sort of where they are placed on the political spectrum, with more conservative publications like the National Post, especially being significantly more critical of the European Union and more positive of the United Kingdom than more centrist or uh, center-left publications uh, like uh, the uh, Globe and Mail or the uh, Toronto Star, some of the French language uh, uh, newspapers that we studied. So there is a political, a partisan dimension, if you will, uh, that has emerged in uh, the perception of Canada's transatlantic partners. And this, in my interpretation, largely stems from this third dimension of Brexit that I mentioned, this idea that Brexit is an example of populist mobilization against uh, uh, globalization and an internationalist establishment, which resonates with uh, some voters on the conservative side of the political spectrum and some commentators in more conservative newspapers. Uh, so you could say that this final third dimension of Brexit, the populist mobilization dimension, seems to have had the most lasting influence um, on uh, Canadian foreign policy. But right now, uh, it's not up front and center because there's so many other political and foreign policy issues uh, that, uh, that are more important and have really sort of pushed Brexit away from, from media headlines. For sure. Thank you so much. Um, and in keeping with the discussion of different per changing perceptions, I was wondering, did these perceptions change when public opinion is compared to that of the government as a whole? Well, uh, the government, uh, while it is uh, sort of governed right now, led right now by the Liberal Party, has been in its public statements, obviously trying to not create uh, the perception that there needs to be a choice between the EU and the United Kingdom. Uh, but uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has made in the Brexit uh, context a number of statements that uh, uh, tended to comment on the EU more favorably uh, than on the UK, specifically referring to Brexit as an example of political divisiveness and chaos and so on. So again, playing uh, this idea of Brexit as an example of populist mobilization, where Trudeau felt apparently that it helped him politically to actually differentiate himself from the United Kingdom to say we are against these types of populist movements and that Liberal Party is sort of a bulwark against that. Um, so that's how I would uh, characterize the Canadian government's position is uh, sort of at the diplomatic level, open to working with everyone. Uh, but uh, when speaking to partisan audiences, uh, Trudeau seemed to be more willing to embrace and, and uh, laud the EU and seemed to sometimes be more critical uh, of the United Kingdom. And that is actually quite well reflected in the public opinion research that we did, uh, where we also found that um, most Canadians particularly those who would regularly support Liberals or NDP um, are very favorable of the European Union, also generally have a positive view of the UK, but a negative view of Brexit. 
and uh, we asked them if if Canada has to choose what should be the priority and most people would say uh, relations with the EU should be the priority over relations with the UK but amongst conservative voters the picture looked quite differently with much more favorable views of Brexit and a much higher likelihood of people saying relations with the UK should be a priority. Uh, and this is also quite similar to what we found in these media articles where again we have these differences between the publications depending on sort of their established political leanings. Um, so again it's sort of a, a, a differentiated picture. Um, when you study Canadian foreign policy as policy, looking at policy pronouncements, diplomatic decisions and so on, I think Canadian foreign policy has been quite skillful in trying to avoid any perception of having to choose between the EU and the UK after Brexit. And uh, they have been able to constructively work with both. But uh, underneath uh, this, if you look at public opinion or sort of more partisan discourse, you see that there's quite a bit of tension emerging from this populist dimension of Brexit. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to add actually an extra question in here. You had been talking about the different attitudes in terms of which relationship might be better for Canada to focus on, whether that's Canada and the UK, Canada and the EU. You had also mentioned a little bit earlier about the role that this could have on the Commonwealth as a whole. So say relationships with Australia, relationships with New Zealand. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and whether Brexit is going to impact the relationship with the rest of the Commonwealth nations. Uh, I think the impact will be relatively limited. Um, there has been some attraction in conservative uh, cycle uh, circles to, to the idea of sort of reinvigorating relations with the Commonwealth or making this Kansak agreement with the uh, sort of more white and developed uh, countries within the Commonwealth. Um, but the appeal of that idea in my reading is mainly based on identity uh, and sort of perceived closeness in terms of identity. The problem, if you will, uh, for advocates of that is, is that there's very little economic or political rationale for uh, strengthening relations with the Commonwealth. Economically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Canada did in the process of Brexit conclude a trade continuity agreement with the UK, which essentially um, extends the provisions of the CETA agreement, even though it no longer applies to the UK. Canada does have a trade agreement uh, with uh, Australia and New Zealand, as uh, both are part of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the UK, by the way, is also no now joining. Uh, so there isn't really any case for an, an extra trade agreement because one already exists. And politically, the Commonwealth is just not particularly significant. Uh, so that's why there isn't really very much in there beyond this sort of attraction uh, in terms of identity uh, to some people who, who like to emphasize uh, Canada's British traditions and the connections that uh, stem from that. Right. Thank you so much. Um, so moving forward, uh, your findings state that Brexit led to a temporary focus on Europe. Does this trickle into reporting on Canada-UK relations today? Why or why not? 
Uh, yeah, well, what we found is that the focus was temporary, as you said, um, and uh, that really the topic of Brexit and, and also the topic of transatlantic relations really disappeared from media headlines in the last year of our study, which was 2021. Obviously, then in 2022, we saw uh, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, and uh, we didn't study that year, but this would have uh, led to a new focus, obviously, on transatlantic relations, but in a very different context. And Brexit uh, uh, was not significant, really, in, in shaping those uh, debates. So what we really see here is that Brexit in terms of uh, uh, as a media phenomenon uh, has really almost disappeared from uh, from uh, Canadian media reporting and has not had lasting changes on uh, how Canada and the UK uh, uh, sort of how, how their relations are discussed or Canada and uh, the EU's relations are discussed. So when we started this research, uh, we felt that there was a potential that Brexit could have much more significant impacts than, than it actually did have. But that's uh, part of uh, scholarly research that um, we started with the hypothesis that there might be fundamental transformation. But ultimately, what our research found was um, a short term period where uh, some um, new ideas were discussed and the reconfiguration of Canadian foreign policy was debated. But ultimately, uh, the changes proved uh, very limited. Thank you. Do you think the UK's exit from the European Union was expected? When did it become apparent to the public that this might be an action that the UK would take? Well, um, that is a very good question uh, because ultimately most people were surprised by the outcome of the Brexit referendum, uh, in part because public opinion uh, surveys before the referendum had suggested a narrow but sort of fairly reliable majority for the Remain side, which was against Brexit and in favor of the UK staying in uh, the, the European Union. But at the same time, uh, if you studied British public opinion uh, in the years leading to Brexit, um, if you studied uh, the history of British Euroscepticism, if you studied how divided particularly the British Conservative Party has uh, been for a number of decades on membership in the European Union, um, then there's, uh, and if you studied also, I mean, the, the general emergence of Euroscepticism, not just in the UK, but in, in other EU member states and, and how it linked up with uh, broader populist skepticism of globalization and so on, uh, then uh, at least in hindsight, it's not a complete surprise. There were very uh, sort of combination of specific circumstances, this populist wave that began in 2016, together with the peculiar British circumstances, the British party system and the uh, a very specific British history with the European uh, Union made this outcome possible. So yes, in the short term, it was a surprise because again, public opinion hadn't predicted it. The British government wasn't prepared for it, even though they had initiated the referendum. And also uh, the UK's partners like the Canadian government did not really expect this referendum outcome, uh, but it certainly uh, something that that uh, we as uh, scholars can explain looking back uh, at, at the factors that uh, contributed to the outcome. 
Thank you. Um, and similarly to that, I had another question that I had been thinking of in relation to this is I was wondering, in your opinion, do you think that one thing that might have influenced the attitudes around Brexit and why the referendum ended up happening was because of the referendum in a few that was a few years earlier when Scotland had been voting to either I believe it was leave the UK or leave the EU. I think it was leave the UK. Yes. Do you think that that election and that referendum, do you think that influenced attitudes towards Brexit? Yes, uh, primarily, I would say it probably influenced the Prime Minister's attitudes. Uh, David Cameron, uh, the UK Prime Minister who put the Brexit referendum on the agenda um, because he had actually twice before used referendums to sort of do away with topics that he didn't like. The first was the example that you mentioned, the Scottish independence referendum, which uh, David Cameron allowed resulting in a vote in Scotland uh, to remain in the UK. So that was the outcome that he wanted. Uh, there was also a referendum under Prime Minister Cameron on uh, changes to a British electoral system away from first past the post towards an alternative vote system, which his coalition partner, the Liberal Democrats had wanted. And again, the outcome was what he wanted. So maybe, I mean, he became a little bit overconfident in his ability to use referendums to sort of get the outcomes he wanted and to uh, make sure that specific topics that uh, he wanted to get out of electoral debates were sort of disposed of that way. Uh, I, can, I can only speculate, but I think that that probably did influence the decision to hold the referendum. Um, when it comes to voters, I think the interconnections between the uh, referendum on, uh, on Scotland's independence and the Brexit referendum are a little bit more uh, more complicated and less obvious. Um, the um, what, what Brexit has done though is sort of reinvigorated uh, calls for uh, Scottish independence among some voters because Scotland was the one uh, component nation of the United Kingdom that had the strongest uh, majority in favor of remaining. So they were outvoted, if you will, in the Brexit referendum. That's interesting, thank you. Um, and so your article mentions that Brexit resulted in the establishment of new, uncertain, and at times tense economic and political relations. Can you expand on what the economic and political implications have been for the UK since Brexit? Yeah, I mean, for the UK, the main challenge was that they did not have a plan for Brexit, not at all. The government uh, that had launched the referendum uh, was in favor of Remain and was confident that they would win. And uh, they, they there were no blueprints for what Brexit would mean. Um, and uh, that, first of all, uh, made it uh, more difficult for the government to argue for Remain because the, the Brexit option could have, could have been everything. People voted for Brexit because they wanted very different things. It was so vague uh, that uh, lots of people could sort of agree on that. There was little to disagree with because we didn't know what Brexit meant. Um, and uh, that continued, uh, obviously, after the referendum. Then Prime Minister Cameron resigned. Uh, Theresa May became his successor. Her mantra was Brexit means Brexit, which of course doesn't explain anything. Um, so it remained vague. And only over the next few years, it became clear that there were essentially these two options, which were then described as hard Brexit and soft Brexit. So depending on how 
much of their relationship to the European Union single market the UK wanted to retain. And in the end, they selected a more hard Brexit option, not staying in the single market, but concluding um, uh, a trade and economic agreement with uh, the uh, European Union uh, that uh, has uh, some preferential access to each other's market, but clearly less than uh, what used to be the case uh, in uh, when, when the United Kingdom was part of the EU and its single market. So economically, uh, I think there's no question that Brexit had negative impacts on the United Kingdom because it has made trade with its most important trading partner more difficult. Um, politically, uh, Brexit has uh, led to a period of uh, quite tumultuous uh, political relations in the UK, um, but it seems that that has sort of stabilized uh, a little bit again um, uh, with uh, the resignation of Boris Johnson, sort of the, the last sort of really prominent figure of these Brexit years has uh, has uh, stepped back from prominent leadership positions. And uh, I think what we see is a return in the United Kingdom to sort of uh, uh, more conventional forms of political competition. And obviously the Conservative government is currently doing quite poorly in opinion polls in, in the United Kingdom. So Brexit has, has had a, a big impact on uh, the UK, its economy and its politics. Uh, it also had a big impact, obviously, uh, while the new relations with the European Union were negotiated um, on uh, the uh, relations across the, the English Channel. But uh, the um, it seems that uh, the, even the most difficult conflicts around the border of Northern Ireland are now in the process of being resolved, which is a positive development um, and uh, means for, for both the UK and the EU that uh, there's, there's a good prospect for stability and sort of constructive relationship going forward. But clearly, economically, Brexit was not a good decision for the UK. For sure, thank you. And so our final question is, what have the implications been for Canada? Yeah, I mean, Canada, really the most important, um, uh, the most important development, I think, when it comes to Canada is really the fact that um, the EU and the UK in a very difficult process have managed to find some kind of arrangement uh, in within Europe. And what that means for Canada is that the likelihood of having to prioritize relations with the EU or with the UK and them being potentially in competition to each other, that has become much less likely than it uh, appeared early in the Brexit process, especially when the relations between the UK and the EU were so conflictual while the withdrawal agreement was being negotiated. Uh, so given that there is sort of uh, now uh, a resolution of most of the Brexit issues in, in Europe. Uh, it uh, means that for Canada, the, the impact of Brexit on Canadian foreign policy uh, in terms of economic relations, in terms of political relations, uh, proved to be short term and it has not led to a major reconfiguration of uh, Canadian foreign policy. 
the main impact, as, as I mentioned before, in my view, has been this populist mobilization dimension of Brexit. And that, I think, does have a lasting impact on Canada, together with uh, the uh, rise of Trump in the United States. Uh, it has led also to sig a significant rise of populist uh, movement in Canada. Uh, we saw that uh, in the convoy, we saw that in how the Conservative Party is trying to negotiate how open they want to be to uh, populist voices, and uh, that will be interesting in uh, the next uh, uh, federal election in Canada, what uh, choices the Conservative Party, the Conservative leader makes. So here I see a lasting uh, impact uh, of Brexit but it hasn't really resulted in uh, tangible changes at the foreign policy level. And because electoral campaigns and debates usually in Canada have a relatively limited impact on foreign policy, because most of our election debates are on domestic issues, I also uh, do not think that it will be particularly likely that uh, we see significant foreign policy changes, even if there were to be a conservative government after the next election. But certainly that is something to be observed. And some European diplomats are a little concerned about that because they feel that uh, the conservative party sort of opened up uh, to uh, these populist voices, including uh, pro-Brexit voices. And uh, if, if you are representing the European Union in Canada here, you, you might be a little bit nervous what that would mean if uh, uh, the Conservatives form the next government and whether these debates will be reopened. Uh, there isn't really a need to reopen them, I think, um, but uh, certainly uh, sort of these underlying uh, differences are there. That's what our st media study showed. That's what our public opinion study shows. So the question is how that will be negotiated by whoever uh, creates Canadian foreign policy going forward. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Hurlman. Um, before we conclude the podcast, do you have any final thoughts? No, I, I uh, thank you very much for your interest. And I think the only thing that, that I um, <clears throat> want to encourage listeners uh, is to, uh, to follow uh, these public debates about Europe, the UK and Brexit and see if they come up in the uh, uh, federal election campaign when it happens next year or in the following year. That is certainly something that that I will be watching. And that's when we can can will really be able to see how much of an impact this populist mobilization dimension of Brexit has really had on Canadian politics. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so that concludes this episode of Policy Talks. Thank you again, Dr. Hurlman, for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Dr. Akeem Hurlman is a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. He is also co-director of the Center for European Studies and is cross-appointed to the Institute of European, Russia and Eurasian Studies. That's it from us on this episode of Policy Talks. A special thank you to Dr. Akeem Hurlman and you, the listeners. Mm -hmm.